Can we all agree that names, that what we name things, it's important, right? It plays an important role in our world. It plays an important role in our society. We, we as a culture put a great deal of effort in what we are going to name, what we're going to call someone or something. I mean, we do this all the time, right? We do this with towns and with street names. We do this with what we name our, our children, what we name our pets, what we name a product or a service. I mean, we name bridges and streets after people who have had a big impact on on the community or, or after events that maybe have taken place there that we count as really significant events over the course of history. And if a name is catchy enough, it'll kind of stick with us in our brains, almost like a disease. Like for me, whenever I see a microfiber towel, I always think of the name ShamWow. Are you like that too? And I'm convinced that ShamWow, do y'all remember those commercials? That ShamWow is the best microfiber towel on the market, bar none, even though I've never owned one, I've never used one, and I have no clue if they actually work as advertised. But that name is just stuck in my head. Names are important, right, for a whole host of reasons. We even pay more money for name brand stuff. We call it name brand stuff. Whether it be name brand paper towels, which I think sometimes are more absorbent, right, than, than the off-brand. Or even if it's just paying more for like a can of Dole juice rather than some off-brand kind of juice. And names as well are usually really important in Scripture, often the name of someone or something will say something about that person or about that story. Like, for instance, Peter's name, one of the disciples, his name means rock. And it's because Peter was the rock on which the church was built. The name Adam, the first man to walk, right? His name is taken from the Hebrew word that means ground because we believe that he was formed from the dust of the ground. Esau is a character in the Old Testament. He's Jacob's, one of the patriarch's brother, and his name means Harry. Can you guess why his name means Harry? Because he was Harry. I mean, there's examples of this all over Scripture. This morning, we're going to start a new sermon series titled Nameless, which is kind of an oxymoron, I know, right? It's a series named Nameless, but here's why we're going to call it that. Despite names holding such significance in the scriptures, there are so many key people in the story that we find in our scriptures. Folks who I believe play a really important role in the narrative that are actually nameless. In this series, we're going to look at a few of those moments and spend some time looking at a couple of those stories. Some of these nameless people that we find across our Bible. And what I realized as I got deeper into the prep for this series and was trying to whittle down what, what four stories we were going to look at over these next four weeks is that most of these nameless folks in Scripture are women. So because of that, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at the nameless women in our Scriptures, across our Bibles, and specifically nameless women who I think deserve to be named. And I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to start off this morning with the first nameless woman that popped in my head when I thought and decided that we were going to do this series. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 5. We're going to read verses 25 through 34. Let's read together. 
When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. But at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask who who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. Mark is doing something in chapter 5 here that he does elsewhere in, in, in his gospel. And there's probably a more sophisticated name for it than this, but I've always just called it a Mark and Sandwich. And you probably noticed it when we were reading, but he places a story within a story, doesn't he? First, Jesus is encountered by a synagogue leader named Jairus about his daughter. But on his way to Jairus' house... He's encountered by someone else, a nameless woman who he heals. And then if we had kept reading, we would see that Jesus next does go to Jairus's house and raises his daughter from the dead. It's truly a story sandwiched within another story. And and whenever Mark does this, he does this a few other times in his gospel. Whenever he does this, we're supposed to realize that these two stories are supposed to shed some light on one another. Usually when he does this, the narratives are similar, but also also different. And they usually highlight something about Jesus's life and Jesus's ministry. It's almost like right here in this moment, Mark as a storyteller is looking at us as the reader and saying, look at these two people. Look at these two people that Jesus encounters here, Jairus and this woman. What do you see? What do you notice? What do you realize about these two folks? And my answer to that, as I wrestled with that question this week, is contrast. Oh my gosh, I see so many differences between Jairus and this woman. Jairus approaches Jesus from the front, I'm sure calling Jesus by name, bowing down before him at his feet, making a pretty public display of his need, while the woman approaches Jesus from the back. It seems doing her very, very best to remain as unseen and as unnoticed as she possibly can. 
Jairus is a leader. The scripture even tells us that. He's a leader in the synagogue, which really is not a position of that much prominence, but, but still, he is named, and he is named a leader in the community, and he's, and he's known for that. The woman, on the other hand, is not, right? I mean, she, she is an outcast. Her, her bleeding would have made her ritually unclean, so she wouldn't have even been allowed to step foot inside of the synagogue, much less be a leader in one. Jairus is somebody who would lead rituals for people of faith, but the woman, because of her condition, would, would have literally been a hazard to ritual. She would have not been allowed anywhere close to something divine or something holy that we believe is happening. I mean, it goes on, right? Jairus was a homeowner. The woman had no money. She had spent all of the money that she had paying for doctors who it seemed continued to promise healing, and then they all fell short. Of course, Jairus is a man, so he inherits all of the privilege that came with that in that society, and the woman does not. And especially for us this morning, Jairus is named multiple times, entitled as a leader, and the woman is nameless. Do you see how different they are? Do you see how different their backgrounds are when they come and seek an encounter with Jesus? I mean, really, it seems to me that that the only thing that they have in common is that they both, in this stage, in this phase of their life, they desperately need a piece of Jesus. But for me, there's There's just something about this woman for me. I mean, like I said, there's a reason that I wanted to cover her the first week because she was the first person that I thought of when I thought of significant women in Scripture that for some reason remain nameless. And I'm not really sure what it is. I don't know if it's because her story forces us to compare her to Jairus or if it's because I feel like we know so much about her and about her life and yet we still don't get her name. I mean, we know that she has been suffering for 12 years. 12 years of her life, she has been stuck with this disease. I mean, y'all, that is a long time to be forced to live on the outskirts of society. That's a long time to be constantly let down by people who are promising that they can heal you. I mean, the term that we would use for that today is that this was a person who was chronically ill. I mean, she was ill with no end in sight, really no hope of recovery, and she had been forced to adjust to this new normal of, of living, this new normal that forced her to be isolated and forced her to carry the shame of her bleeding with her. We know that she was once not poor. I mean, it seems to me that she had the money to pay the doctors that were promising healing, but she spent all of it seeking that result, and she only got worse And worse, we know that she previously had a life. It seems friends and family, maybe a career, right? Maybe a way of providing for herself. And all of that and more had been taken away by this disease. And yet, she hasn't given up. Which I think we should really take note of. I don't think we should overlook the fact that she has every reason in the world to retreat, to give up, to simply accept her future. But she doesn't. Why? 
Why doesn't she give up? It seems the turning point in her story is this verse, when she heard about Jesus. That's when it changed for her. It seems like that's when she began to have hope again that maybe her life could be different. If she could just get close enough to this man, if she could just touch his clothes, she believes that she would be healed. I mean, that is one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture because there is so much wrapped up in that inner dialogue moment that we get from this woman. There is so much faith and so much boldness, but there's also so much shame and this desire to be invisible even though she's still clinging to this hope that maybe this time it'll be different. It seems that the woman really, really never had any intention of taking a direct approach to Jesus. It's almost like she's learned over the last 12 years that people tend to get pretty upset when she makes herself known in close quarters. And she probably realizes that it's really not worth it to draw attention to herself, knowing that if she does, she might not get close enough to Jesus to be able to touch his clothes. But for some reason, she is convinced. She she is convinced that, that if she can just touch the cloak of Jesus, that it will be enough for her bleeding to stop. That after all of the doctors and all of the suffering and all of the shame, all of the time that has gone by in her life, she believes that something is finally going to work. So she lays it all on the line. And she pushes her way through the crowd and reaches out and manages to touch the hem of Jesus' clothes. And it works immediately. I mean, she can feel it in her body. She can feel that something is different, that, that she realizes that she has been healed. And then immediately her plan gets derailed, doesn't it? Jesus stops in his tracks And he begins to look around, and he says, who touched my clothes? I mean, can't you picture her trying to disappear in that moment, wishing that she was invisible, maybe even regretting her decision to touch Jesus' clothes, even though she knows that she is healed now, trying to back away from Jesus, but being pressed in by the crowds that that are around him, wondering if she's made a mistake? If this is going to be just another moment of of embarrassment for her, all the while trying to figure out how in the world this healer knows that she that she touched him. How does this Messiah, how did he know so so quickly that she had reached out and touched his clothes? We don't really get in the scriptures to see how much time goes by when Jesus is asking these questions, but for some reason I imagine that it wasn't immediate. But But eventually it seems like she reluctantly ends up like Jairus did in the beginning of the story. She ends up falling at the feet of Jesus for for everyone to see. But unlike Jairus, who, who I think probably did this with some degree of confidence, she does it with trembling and with fear out out of the unknown of of what's going to happen next after she reveals herself. And Jesus says two things to her. That nobody expected him to say. The first, and I want you to miss this, is that he names her. Jesus doesn't call her woman, he calls her daughter. 
which in the story, in this Mark and Sandwich, it seems like is a connection to Jairus' daughter, but I think it's also a testament to how Jesus views this woman. It seems to me that Jesus is implying that no matter what the world may think of this woman in this moment, despite what she may think of herself, she has a home, she has an identity, she has people who love her, and that she has a heavenly father. Christ calls her daughter, which means that for us, we really shouldn't be referring to this woman as the bleeding woman. What we should be calling her is a daughter of heaven. The second thing that Jesus does is he looks at her and he says, it is your faith that has made you well, which I think is one of the kind of confusing elements to this story. It seems to me that that what Christ is doing here, what he's saying, is that it was the woman's faith that opened the door for Jesus' healing power to take root and move in her life. I think a lot of people get stuck on that line, and I don't want us to overthink it. I think it's really a lot simpler than we make it oftentimes, because here's what I'm struck by, I think, the most this time around with this story and this woman. This woman had all of the reasons in the world to think that there was nothing that Jesus could do to help her. And yet, according to Jesus, in the end, it was her faith. It was her courage. It was her resilience. It was her belief in Christ that provided the opening for that healing to take place. With that in mind, friends, this morning, I think there are all sorts of insights that we could pull from this story, that we could pull from this moment and this woman and and her story. But for me, at least, the question that I felt left with this week was this. What is stopping us from running to Jesus like this? What is it in our lives that that is preventing us, that is hindering us, that is keeping us from being willing to to risk it all and trust, right? That if we can just touch the fringes of Jesus' cloak, that it will be enough. I mean, we know all the things that should have, if we're being honest, should have hindered this woman from making this move on Jesus, her position in society, her ritual uncleanliness, right? The shame and the mindset that she would have been forced into over the last 12 years, the hopelessness that she would have been left with after all of the doctor's visits and all of the money that she spent. And my guess is that most of us in here have not been bleeding for 12 years, that most of us feel welcome inside of churches and inside of holy spaces. But come on, if we're honest with ourselves, what is stopping us from reaching out to Jesus like this? Is it fear? Is it guilt that we're carrying with us from some mistake that we made a long time ago and we just can't seem to forgive ourselves for it? Is it shame? Is it hurt? Is it pain? Is is it some bitterness that we're holding on to because we feel like God didn't show up in our life the way that we wanted him to? Is it doubt? Do we question whether God can really do it in our lives? Whether God can really make all of the pieces come together? I think if this story tells us anything, it is to go to Christ in your desperation. That there should be nothing that stops you from simply reaching out to him. 
No matter the pain, no matter the grief, no matter the fear that bubbles up inside of you, no matter the crowds that may surround you and be pressing in on you, just extend your hand. Reach out to him and trust, right? Trust that if you can just touch the fringes of his clothes, that he has the power to make you whole, that he has the power to bring you healing. I wonder when the last time was in your life when you feel like you opened that door, right? When you opened the door to let that healing power of Christ into your life, into your soul, into your spirit. Because every time that I read this story, by the time I get to the end of it, I I am convinced that when we do that, when we put everything aside and reach out to Jesus and open that door and trust that he is enough to make us whole, that not only will we too be healed, but we will be reminded that the only identity The only name that matters of all the things that the world may call us, the only one that really counts is what we are to Christ, which I believe is a child of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.